you're listening to the Tongue Tie Experts Podcast, a weekly program providing information and support for those families impacted by tongue and lip tie and the professionals caring for them. I'm Lisa Palladino, a midwife and a lactation consultant with over 30 years of experience. If you are a parent looking for answers or a professional who is curious to learn more than what you learned in school on this topic, welcome. This podcast is for you. A gentle disclaimer, please do not consider anything discussed on this podcast by myself or any guest of the podcast to be medical advice. The information is provided for educational purposes only and does not take the place of your own medical or lactation provider. Thank you. Welcome everyone to the Tongue Tie Experts podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Palladino, and I'm thrilled to be here today with Tanya Tringali. Tanya is a midwife, just like I am. Um, And it's always an honor when two midwives get together to talk. We always have fun. The great thing about midwives is, one of the great things, is that we have such diverse scopes of practice. And we do such different things under the title of certified nurse midwife. So Tanya and I will chat a little bit about that today and talk about breastfeeding and breastfeeding um, topics that we may or may not know about from our traditional in-school education and how to support parents and babies with their feeding. So welcome, Tanya. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. I'm so excited. So, um, Tanya, I gave a little bit, I set up, you're a midwife, but tell me a little bit more about what you're doing now, maybe a little bit of what you've done and where you, what's brought you to where you are. Tell us about Tanya's journey. Yeah, I actually love the way you framed how we all do such different things because it has been a long period of growth and outgrowth and all of that, right? So I worked as a full-time, full-scope midwife. And um, what that means is that I did all the things full-time. So I saw patients in the office for prenatal care, postnatal care, gynecological care, primary care, you name it. And I caught babies in the hospital. Um, I've always been a hospital-based midwife. But when I sent my only kiddo off to college, just about four years ago, she's graduating this year. Um, Yeah, (laughs) I decided that it was time for me to sleep at night. Sleeping at night was something I was really missing and it was really taking a toll on my mental health and I believe my physical health. Um, And I had some really big interests that I felt like needed to be explored through the lens of a midwife. And one of those was fitness in the perinatal period. And that's kind of separate from what we'll talk about today, but it's still, that is actually, mm-hmm. what's that? I said, that's so fun to hear about because as you're talking, people who are listening can't see me nodding, but I'm nodding because I left bedside midwifery in the hospital for much the same reasons that you did, but my exploring went in a completely different direction. But that's what happens, which is so amazing with being a midwife. We have so many opportunities and possibilities with where we can go, right? Absolutely. And interestingly enough, at first, 
I felt like I was telling people I'm not going to be a midwife anymore. And finally a wise midwife like hit me and said, stop saying that. Like, that's not true. You're still a midwife. You're, you're going down like expert midwife row. And I was like, Oh, I'm still a midwife. And you know what? I got chills when you said that because the midwives who were my mentors, when they closed their office, of course they closed their office and their practice the year that I needed to do my internship, which was not good timing, but it worked out. But they had some things from their office. And one of the things that they wanted to pass to me was a plaque that said someone had given it to them. And it said, midwives aren't what we do. It's who we are. Yeah. And that's the truth. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I am I am a midwife through and through. Like if somebody says, like, what are you? What is the thing you identify with most? Midwife is the first word that comes to mm-hmm. mind. For Me sure. too. Yeah. Um, Were you an RN first or no? No, I don't know. What did you just say? Were you an RN before? Midwife? Oh, RN first. I don't know why I didn't understand that. Yes. Yeah. Um, I was an RN first, but I became an RN only to become a midwife, right? Like I was a young, young mom and Mm -hmm. I didn't have a bachelor's degree yet. And I remember like having to go through the agonizing decisions of, I knew that I could become a certified midwife in New York state without becoming a nurse, but I knew also deep down that I wouldn't live in New York forever. And so I took a deep breath and became a nurse. And then I did work as a nurse for four years because as it turned out, you know, I really needed to let my daughter get into kindergarten before I could start midwifery school. It was like, there was no way I could do it until she was in kindergarten. Right. So, so you know, the reason I ask that is because, and I know I keep interrupting you, but we have so many similarities. Nice. Fun to talk. <laughs> being, being a midwife, the other day, somebody asked me if I was a nurse and I, and it almost took me back because I worked as a nurse for many years, but I never, and, and I'm sorry to all the RNs out there because I treasure my nursing background, but I, I always think, I'm a midwife, but then I was like, oh, oh no, but I'm a nurse too. Yes, of course I'm a nurse. I'm a nurse first, but I'm a midwife. You know, that, yeah, I mean, the lactation consultant part. Sure. And I mean, the way I frame that for myself is you say, I treasure my nursing background. I treasure nurses, but I don't necessarily treasure my nursing background because I do feel so strongly that midwifery is a separate and distinct profession. Yes. Um, And so that's kind of where, and I think that's really, that works well in New York state. It doesn't work well in other parts of the country, Mm -hmm. um, which was such a shocker to me. Like I knew that intellectually, I heard about the difference between the North and the South and California and New York and everything else. I heard all of that. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I moved to New Orleans and I was like, whoa, (laughs) like what a different world. Anyway, so fitness, the fitness stuff I started doing that was really interesting ended up opening this door to postpartum. Mm-hmm. And I literally saw the postpartum care gap with my own eyes for the first time in a way that I had clearly been wandering around the world with blinders on mm-hmm. as a midwife, thinking I was doing my job by rounding on people in the hospital and being loving and caring and all of those things and answering questions mm-hmm. on the telephone when they came in and seeing them for a six-week postpartum visit. I had no idea the depths of fill in the blank with any word you can think of anxiety, fear, you know, just the lack of sleep, the, how do I get into this new body and identity of mine? Mm -hmm. And suddenly I was working with people on the day to day 
And you know what? So often the fitness went to the side because there were more pressing issues. And so suddenly I was sitting on the floor of a gym with somebody helping them breastfeed and, you know, whatever it was like doing all the things. And out of that grew this real passion for filling the postpartum care gap. And so that is the bulk of what I do now. And the fitness piece fits in whenever I have a client who is also passionate about fitness or finds that they go back to their exercise routine and they're experiencing some problems. And they kind of come back to me and say, Hey, can we, can we talk about this stuff too? Uh, But mostly what I'm doing is is offering a range of services that support. I, I keep focusing on postpartum, but I don't only do postpartum, right? The same thing I'm talking about now I can do for people in the preconception period. And I love doing that too, but we're here talking about postpartum for now. Right. You know, basically I have a range of offerings from ranging from hands off. This is your online course, take it, run with it, go do what you want to do in your own time schedule I'm just starting to launch group options for people so that I can lower the price point and give people community like the Cadillac, which is one-on-one care, meaning I meet with people every two weeks on a long video chat, but we are texting and Marco Poloing every day. And I have a larger support team around me for when people are in need. Um, So that's been quite the journey. I love that. So um, let's just double back to the, the term you used, postpartum care gap. Because I I want my listeners to really understand what we mean. I understand what you mean by that because I've witnessed it. Yeah. Um, But we have both parents and professionals who listen to the podcast. Mm -hmm. And I'm not even sure that some professionals in the OBGYN pediatrician kind of place understand what we mean by that gap. And of course, Parents are always surprised when they've been seeing you sometimes twice a week, sometimes three times a week. And then it's like, okay, see ya. Yeah. Right. You just just fall off the cliff. Right. (laughs) Right. So what, what, what do you mean as far as the gap? Is it just the time frame? Is it? The postpartum care gap alludes to this large idea that there is, in essence, I mean, I'll oversimplify, but there is essentially a six-week care gap when people need care the absolute most. Then there's this mini little pit stop at six weeks, which a client a long time ago called her six-week visit underwhelming. And I've been telling every client ever since, and every single one comes back and goes, yep, that's the right word, underwhelming. Mm -hmm. So like, that's a compliment because I've also heard worse. Mm -hmm. So the six-week visit is really a letdown for many modern people out there. They expect so much more than what they get. Mm -hmm. And so my care helps people survive and thrive through those first six weeks. Then I help them get ready for their six-week visit so that it's not such a letdown. Like you're going in prepared. We've already talked about contraception and family planning and all the things and how to heal and blah, 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 and this long path to sex and fitness and all the jazz. And then they have that six-week visit and we just continue to unpack through to 12 weeks and sometimes beyond, depending on the circumstances of their birth and their healing process or their breastfeeding journey or whatever it is. So, you know, one way that I frame this gap for people who are living it is to say, let's pretend that there are 100 unique problems someone could experience just making up a number. Mm -hmm. My gut feeling and my experience says that people hit about three speed bumps 
every postpartum. Mm -hmm. They might be little, they might be medium, they might be big, but about three, but we don't know which ones you're going to hit. Right. Right. And so some people will say things like, I wish I would have known, go ahead and finish the sentence with anything you want, because that's based on their experience. But I know that if I sat every pregnant person down and told them all 100 things that could happen to them, they would be terrified. There's no right. reason to do that to people, right? right? So we have to figure even out a bit prior. I mean, I know even with breastfeeding uh, education, you can't really truly treat teach someone to breastfeed until they have given birth and have that baby that they want to breastfeed in their arms. Like you, yeah. I can educate up the wazoo. I can talk about the problems that can happen, the speed bumps, as you call them, that can come along the way. But until they're holding that particular baby. But there's a way in which we can give people insight into what's coming Mm -hmm. and help them be prepared for the unknown. Right. And part of that is them knowing that they've got someone right there, ready to help the second things are even questionably not right. Right. So that's the whole thing. Like one of my big, big issues with the postpartum care gap is that because there isn't set care, people wander around the world feeling something's a little off, but feeling like it's not worthy of a phone call. I can't possibly bother my provider for this quote, stupid question. Mm -hmm. And I tell my clients, I want all your stupid questions. Mm -hmm. If anything has rolled through your head three times, I wonder if this is normal. I want to know about it. Mm -hmm. We're going to, I'll hop on a phone call with you immediately. We will break it down. I have literally, no joke, no exaggeration, saved lives doing virtual care. I know. Saved lives when their own care team is kind of poo-pooing the situation. Right. I have had hospital readmissions after I have said, I see a problem. This is a problem. Please call your local. Local person says, take a Motrin. (laughs) And next thing you know, we're readmitted to the hospital. I'm like, see, I told you so. Right. Right? So there's, there is this absence of care and also this idea that everyone's fine postpartum. But -hmm. what we know is that one third, this is a sad fact I hate to share, but one third of all maternal deaths happen in the postpartum period. And nearly all of them are preventable. Right. So and what this gap means for women, providers is there's an women. opportunity. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, just to add to that, um, the rates are higher for women of color. Absolutely. And, you know, like inc- incredibly. Three to five higher. times higher for women <laughs> of color. Absolutely. And, um, I Yeah, I was also a part of and continuing on a postpartum support group uh, virtually. I would rotate through helping um, in this particular group. And we had similarly women who had postpartum preeclampsia who would not have known it if they weren't in our group. And one woman in particular who recognized it in her friend because she had been through it and later came back to the group and told us not only did you guys save my life, but I was able to tell my friend. And I had someone in my office last week coming for breastfeeding support. I, I really do see an increase in postpartum preeclampsia since the pandemic. But just last week, I had somebody who had had some hypertension, not real preeclampsia. And I reviewed with her the signs and symptoms to report. And the next day she was in the hospital. 
Yeah, I, I did an episode on my podcast in season one on postpartum preeclampsia. Well, actually, it's a story of a black woman who is a high level athlete also. So like she comes in thinking I'm like the healthiest person on the planet, right? Like there's that also. Um, but she had preeclampsia with her first baby and had to be delivered preterm. And then she developed postpartum preeclampsia with her second. And the only reason she caught it is because she has a good friend who's an L&D nurse who was checking on her. She calls her her angel, you know? So people don't remember or realize that we don't feel the symptoms when they're first starting. Right. You mentioned your podcast. We didn't talk about your podcast when you That's introduced right. yourself. So Tanya is the host of the Mother Wit Maternity Podcast. And we'll link to that in the show notes because your, your podcast is something that we should all be listening to, especially those who are having babies now. Um, well, and-, and you know what, Lisa, the thing I really like most about your podcast and mine and just both of our practices is you're one of the only people I know who's struck out to do something kind of interesting as a midwife who's really trying to speak equally to both providers and clients. We both have this similar, really shared mission where we're not just going straight to consumers or straight to providers. We're really trying to have a conversation that encompasses everyone. And that's what I think I love most about being able to chat with you and collaborate with you. Yes, I I totally agree. It is unique. And that's one of the reasons why, um, you know, one of the other things that we have in common. So we met late, late in the game, but realized quickly how much even though we've had different paths, we have so much in common and totally. it's great. It's great. Sister midwives, right? <laughs> um, so getting back to the postpartum period and let's pivot a little bit because even though I could talk about midwifery care in general, postpartum care forever, because I, I think it's important. We have to pivot to breastfeeding tongue tie to stay on track for the issues of this particular podcast What I wanted to do around the time, because this podcast is either airing right before or right after National Day of the Midwife, which is in the beginning of May, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about breastfeeding, midwives, what we do for, for our patients and clients as midwives, what we were taught about or not taught about breastfeeding and how that relates to tongue tie. So we've had a couple of conversations about this off camera, but I think it's important for midwives who are listening and for parents who are listening to hear us chat about it, to bring it a little bit out in the open. Yeah. um, You know, first, I guess I want to say that other than deeply believing in breastfeeding and being taught the the basic idea that breast is best, right? Those kinds of cliche thoughts. In my experience, I wasn't taught a whole lot about how to support people through their breastfeeding journey. And so what I offered my clients came from my direct experience. Now, thankfully, I had exclusively breastfed a baby. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that led me to believe that I knew what I was doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, There's a positive and a negative. I had an experience I could work with. I was really great at getting a baby onto the breast. And you know what? I did that for years, Mm -hmm. years and years and years. I would get that baby onto the breast and pat my own self on the back. 
Mm -hmm. walk out of the room and go to the next one, having the baby or whatever it was I had to do. Right. It didn't, it did not entirely occur to me until I embarked on this journey where I work with people so closely day in and day out through their entire postpartum journey that I was in fact sabotaging them. Mm -hmm. So it did not think that you say that because similar, similar to you, I was very good at the hospital of getting babies to latch. And then when I started learning through my IBCLC educational journey, how plugging a baby into the breast actually could thwart their future efforts and how what I was doing was not actually happen, helping. And I, I, ha, I, I stepped back and I was like, this is interesting. I actually even, you know, it made me think about what I learned in midwifery school about breastfeeding. And one of the things I learned in midwifery school, I remember on the boards, I don't remember the exact question, but on the boards, there was a question that I had to answer the way I knew they wanted it, according to the textbook, that I knew was actually false in practice because of what I had, because I was already studying for my IBCLC. So I was like, this this is eye-opening. I have to actually give a wrong answer to pass my midwifery boards. Now, this is not to say that there aren't midwives who know and can support breastfeeding and manage a breastfeeding mom well, but our basic two-year education on, on, you know, in midwifery school does not include a lot of hours about breastfeeding. Do you, do you agree? No, I mean, if it includes an hour, right. I mean, that's the truth of it. Yeah. Um, Look, I mean, I'm I'm faculty at two universities, and while we try our best, um, it's just simply not possible. We have so much to learn in two years, mm-hmm. and I hate to say it, but breastfeeding falls kind of lower on the totem pole. Mm-hmm. We have an expectation that students will practice this skill in the clinical setting, but right. that's very variable. And so why there is so much variation from one student or eventually midwife to another, I think, has a lot to do with where they learn Mm -hmm. and what the breastfeeding environment is like at their clinical site. Mm -hmm. We know that breastfeeding rates vary greatly from hospital to hospital, depending on how they run things. Mm -hmm. You know, what is their use of formula? What, how skilled are their nurses? How busy are their nurses, right? So when you have a culture that really supports breastfeeding, our students are going to learn a little bit more. But also, here's something else I want to say, and it's not just about midwives, actually. It would even apply to nurses. And IBCLCs, in my opinion. This might be an unpopular comment, so I'm curious what you'll say. Um, I find that people, including myself once upon a time, who really only worked with breastfeeding people in the first few days of life, don't have all the skills they need for days four and onward, let's say. It is two completely different animals. And so I think we as a profession believe ourselves to be more competent than we are because we just aren't out there in the community seeing it. Now, I'm assuming home birth midwives, which I've never been one myself, I'm assuming that they are like above us in a certain sense, us hospital-based midwives, because they are spending more time seeing their clients, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't know for sure, right? Yeah. But it's but, still- and that's not meant to be a criticism as yeah. much as it's meant to be an opportunity to acknowledge that there's a couple different things that we could do better right now which is use our words more than our hands and acknowledge 
that we that there's a lot we don't know from the point where somebody goes home. The situation mm-hmm. evolves greatly at that point. Right. Yeah, I I think that you're making a very important point and I found my limitations when I went from inpatient lactation help to outpatient and I would get a call about my 8-month-old is such and such and I'd be like, "Oh no, I never saw an 8-month-old nurse." No, you know, Aside from my own kids, right? Because I wasn't helping eight-month-old to nurse. So I do know that there are lactation consultants who are better at other, you know, better at one thing than the other. Um, My skills have evolved, you know, over the seven years of outpatient practice, for sure. I'm still more comfortable with a brand new baby than I am with an eight-month-old, especially because there's teeth. And if you're trying to examine... Well, you're always going to get more newborns than eight month olds, right? (laughs) Whether we're looking at the attrition rate or we're looking at the success rate, you're not going to see that many eight month olds. Right. But there are, there are a lot of um, lactation consultants who kind of specialize and in the field, like we know, like if I know I have a certain problem that I'm finding in a client, that's not my, my thing, I know who to refer to. You know, mm-hmm. and, and that's kind of cool in, in IBCLC networks. However, if you're a parent listening, you may not know this, right? But I want to step back and say, if you're a parent, and I think this is what this is the like what to do about the information we just shared. If you're a parent, even if you're getting the most excellent and comprehensive midwifery care and you're not succeeding at breastfeeding reach out to a lactation consultant. Ask First ask, ask your midwife if you're comfortable for a referral, but you can find one on your own. It won't insult the midwife for you to get more care, especially if they're working in a traditional role where they don't have the time and, and the headspace to be helping everyone with every breastfeeding problem. But everyone deserves to have lact- lactation support. And most IB, most people never ever see an IBCLC and give up before that. So that's number one. Number two, when you're calling the IBCLC, don't be afraid to ask if they have special training and expertise for the level that you're at. So I get calls all the time. Like I had somebody just a few weeks ago whose baby is having... Um, she has, she has to wean. She just has to wean. I won't go into why. And she asked me if I have experience with helping mothers to wean instead of just making the appointment. And I really respected that. And I do. So yes, I could help her. Um, I get referrals from other lactation consultants who aren't as comfortable with assessment and treatment of tongue tie or the hormonal issues of low milk supply because they can't order the labs and things like that. So we have networks where we will refer out to each other, but as a as a parent, not to be afraid to ask that lactation consultant. Do you, you know, I think my baby has a tongue tie. Do you know about tongue tie? Or is there a, is there a lactation consultant that you can recommend that knows more than you do about tongue tie? And let's also go back a little bit and say, as a midwife, and I think you've had this experience, when um, a parent is having trouble with breastfeeding and 
and we can't fix it, what do we do? You know, what's our, like, there are, there are all the tools that we've learned or we've used in our experience that don't always work. So what, what should we do at that point? What, what have you been in that situation where you're like, oh no, now what? <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, look, I am not an IABCLC and I, I know that more now than I ever did before. Um, I refer to IBCLCs more liberally now that I have more skills. I have learned so much from people like you um, and a few other lactation consultants who I work really closely with really often. Mm -hmm. And I have a lot more skills than I had 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. But it's like the more you know, the more you know you don't know. It's that kind of situation. So, you know, in my world, because look, anyone who is signing up for care with me while they're still pregnant, uh, which is the ideal way to sign up for postpartum, extra postpartum care, um, is already in the mindset of I'm, I'm building my team, right? That's kind of like one of my mottos here. We're building your team to be successful. What is important to you? What are your goals? What are your priorities? How do we rank them? You know, all of that stuff. One of the things I'm doing early on is saying, let's find you a lactation consultant physically in your community while you're still pregnant. I want you to make that initial phone call, decide if you want to be seen once prenatally or not. Make sure you know how much lead time she needs to get you in so that the moment you have your baby, if we have an immediate mayday or a delayed mayday, we know what we're dealing with. Right. And some people really, you know, every so most people will do that. But every so often, somebody's like, yeah, I'm going to play it by ear. Or maybe there's somebody who says to me, I'm, in, I'm indifferent at the moment about breastfeeding. I'm only going to do it if it comes really naturally or easily. And I've got, sometimes it does, right? And then they're like all in. Um, but that's why I have a team of virtual people who I can refer to. And believe it or not, I, I think you'll believe it. I hope your listeners will now too. Um, I am going to go with, I'm making up this number. It's somewhat anecdotal, but I'm going to go with 80% of problems can be solved virtually. Yeah. And I think that that's beautiful because I'm not only helping someone identify or solve a potential problem, I'm empowering them to do the thing themselves, mm -hmm. to do the skill, right? It's that whole me doing it for you versus you doing it yourself. So it's killing two birds with one stone. Mm -hmm. And if we can't solve the problem virtually, well, we need to escalate to either an IBCLC virtually or an IBCLC in person, whatever they're most open to, depending on the situation, COVID, all the things, right? Um, but yeah, we, we get help where we need to. And just, you know, taking that a step farther, when you identify a tongue tie, we need more support. Mm -hmm. And so we have to acknowledge that we work as part of a much larger system and we all play a role mm -hmm. and kind of have that wealth mindset almost, right? right? <laughs> Are you a professional who feels like me that we didn't learn enough about tongue tie and breastfeeding in school? Do you want to have the confidence to know that you are giving families the best information? Whatever your role on the healthcare team, if you take care of breastfeeding parents or babies or pregnant families, you play an important part in supporting infant feeding goals. Join me on May 18th at 7 p.m. for a free webinar the five things that breastfeeding babies want you to know about tongue tie. Sorry, parents, we'll chat another time. This is just for pros. The link to join is in the show notes and all the info about how to join and the date and time will be in there for you too. It's a bit.ly link. So if you're familiar with bit.ly, bit 
bit.ly slash free tongue tie webinar. And the first letter in each of those words is capitalized. If you've been looking for factual tongue tie education, this is a great place to start. And it's free. Hope to see you there. So I'm going to go to a place where I've, um, and I, again, I hope not to insult any midwives. I hope to educate. Um, I've had midwives who have learned a little bit about tongue tie and can find one, so to speak, or assess and think there is a tongue tie there and send the baby off to get the tongue tie, either lasered or clipped, or maybe clip it themselves because we're allowed to do that if we are trained. Um, and then the parent doesn't have the su other support around that. And then we'll find their way to me or I'll find them on social. Cause you know, I have a large social media, a couple of groups and on Instagram. Um, and they'll say, well, the midwife sent me to the dentist and I got the release and things aren't better. And then I just want to take a deep breath and say, I wish people knew what they didn't know, because one of the things that they don't know is that it could look like a tongue tie, but it might not be the tongue tie that's causing the breastfeeding problem, right? So knowing that how to assess for a tongue tie isn't the end of the story. It's knowing the whole process. And you mentioned team. And again, I'm like cheering because I have a, I refer to the tongue tie team. It's not just about the IBCLC. It's not just about the dentist. It's about the IBCLC being able to assess what's going on with breastfeeding, make sure it's on a milk supply issue, make sure it's not optimal positioning that can help the baby latch better to the breast. We never want to do a procedure just because we see something because tongue tie is um, functional diagnosis, not what it appears to be, you know? So we've had some unnecessary procedures. Oh my goodness. I got a message the other day of had the tongue tie released three times and things still aren't good. And I'm thinking that poor little baby, yeah. it might not even be the tongue tie. That's the problem, yeah. you know? Yeah. And and then there's every variation, right? It's like, you know, the podcast that you came, when you came on my show, remember you followed uh, an episode where there was a pretty severe tongue tie story that went on. And again, there were three releases in that story. There's so many nuances that can arise that just boggle the mind if you don't know enough. And in this particular story, she had an initial release done and she reported immediate relief. And then it kind of went away within a few yeah. days. Yeah. So it's yeah. like, you go, wait, I thought we solved the problem and now we didn't, right. Right? right? I'm not claiming that I completely understand all of that, but I had my whole team ready to go because I was like, uh, this is kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that it's actually kind of common that that happens because things seem better because all of a sudden the baby can open their mouth wider. But, you know, and I don't remember the details of that particular situation, so I don't really want to comment specifically, but a lot of times there's something else going on. Like I've told the story often, both on my Instagram stories and here about my own grandson. You know, he has a tongue tie, but his issue isn't tongue tie. His issue is the position he was stuck, literally stuck in my daughter's pelvis asynclitically, which means off-centered. So he was born 
after being stuck for like three weeks in the same position at almost 42 weeks with a molded head that was totally crooked and he feels comfortable leaving his head crooked. So his muscles and his and and everything, his fascia all are designed to work in a crooked position, which isn't necessarily the best thing for my daughter <laughs> and for his functioning going forward. So his treatment very individualistically is involving OT care and physical therapy and some craniosacral therapy and some oral exercises, all of that. Because if he would have just had, if somebody would have looked at his mouth from birth and said, oh yeah, it's because he's got a tongue tie and clipped the tongue tie, it would have been a disaster because it wasn't just about the tongue tie. So that's, I digress, but that's just one of the examples of a well-meaning midwife who has learned that tongue tie is a thing, still may not know enough to guide the journey. They should be referring to an IBCLC if possible. Other yeah. lactation providers, because, you know, we talk about the alphabet soup of lactation. There are lots of initials that can represent lactation consultants. IBCLC is the ideal, but there are there are other lactation uh, counselors, lactation educators that actually may be able to guide, not treat, but guide the journey if there's no IBCLC available, you know? Um, so, yeah. So, Again, I hope that us being two midwives talking about midwifery, I don't want to say shortcomings or lack of, of specialty in a certain area doesn't upset anybody who is a midwife, you know, because I mean, there's lots of, I, we could go on forever about missing pieces in education, you know, um, and the different roads that we go down, but um yeah. So I love what you do, Tanya. I love your program. And that's sort of how we met because we were both involved in the same postpartum care project. And that's that's how we met each other. And um, the more and, you know, more and more as time goes on, especially because of the quarantines that we've lived through and the way that care has shifted to, I think, um, maybe even decrease the amount of contact that people used to have with their OB or midwife because of the way things are structured now. Um, the more that that happens, the more necessity there is for someone to have the support that your program offers. You know, and I think everyone deserves to have some sort of postpartum support between when they give birth and they're handed this squiggly little creature that wants to eat and cry and poop and and they've never taken care of a baby and they're sore from either their C-section or their vaginal birth and they're not sleeping and they don't know what to eat. And we're told, OK, now go home and I'll see you in six weeks. Right. Yeah. Not fair at all. <laughs> no, it's not a good time to be left alone. Mm hmm. Not a good time to be left alone. And, and you know, yeah, well-meaning family will often arrive and partners do their best. But especially if you're breastfeeding, there's a way in which you and your body are still predominantly involved in this process. And it's very taxing. And so we have to make, you know, some real 
hard decisions about how we are going to care for the mother so that she can care for her baby Mm -hmm. instead of just, you know, having a bunch of visitors come by that keep her awake when she probably needed a nap and all the things, right? So there's so much nuance to the way your life changes the second you see your baby's toes, Mm -hmm. right? That it's like, it's something that you can't, you can't entirely plan for. So some people will say, I don't really know why you do all this postpartum planning. You can't really plan for it. And there is some truth to that, but it's a huge oversimplification, Mm -hmm. right? There are things that we should sit down and talk about together, or rather I, I, as the expert in the room, prompt you to talk to your partner about like, Mm -hmm. how are we going to sleep? Let's forget the baby's sleep situation right now. I'll tell you what that's going to look like for the first two weeks you know, for the most part, let's talk about your living situation and your structure and how we're going to find you pockets of sleep. And oh, by the way, do you want to prioritize breastfeeding over your mental health or your mental health over your breastfeeding? Because sometimes they collide, Mm -hmm. right? So like really figuring out where people are at in their process and their journey and what their issues are coming into this. And I mean, Um, it's something as simple as, do you know what you're going to eat? Where are you yeah. from? <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, nobody talks um, about that. And that's a big challenge. You know, yeah. I, I've seen moms on day three postpartum. They come here straight from the hospital with their newborn for a visit. And I'm like, have you eaten today? And she's like, she looks at me like, oh, eating. That's an idea. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, you, you have to sometimes be literally serve food and say, here, eat this. Um, Not that there's anything wrong with a couple days of takeout. Fair. But I find that people go down this path who maybe didn't want to or expect to, or they stay there too long. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden they're like losing it because they wish they could just get a nutritious, healthy meal in. And there are lots of ways we can make this happen, but we've got to get creative and it takes a little bit of advanced planning. So some of the things that we can plan in advance, take things off your plate later for the unknowns that are going to arise. Right. So we're really just making space for the things that we can't plan for. Mm-hmm. That's what planning's about. Right. And I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but you tell me. I feel that the way our system works, we don't even let families, let parents know that there's anything to plan for. Right? No. So you don't know. And I remember when I first started working on the postpartum unit, I worked as a nurse, as an RN on postpartum. And I was assigned to give the families take-home instructions. And I felt like, wait a minute, this is what we're telling them? And this is all we're telling them? And they're gone for six weeks? Like, it was just like, they have no idea what it's going to be. And we're just... Checking boxes like, oh, yep. Told them about diaper care. Told them what to do for the circ. Told them what I did. <laughs> how many and we're telling them at a time when their ability to take in information is so limited. Right. They are so tired. They are so overwhelmed. Yeah. They are literally about to walk out the door and the panic is setting in. And now we're loading them up with 15 things on a checklist that we think we need to tell them and have them sign and say, yes, I told you. So you can't come back and sue me and say, I didn't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's basically what postpartum care in the hospital is. <laughs> I did it. It felt awful. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I remember thinking, oh, they're not. Re-. I mean, there are some there are some moms that just 
thrived. I mean, they just like took it all in, knew what to do, looked all settled. And those are the ones I worried about crashing in a couple of weeks, but that's another story. Um, (laughs) Let's, you know, one of the things that we didn't really touch on, because we did touch on postpartum um, preeclampsia and breastfeeding and all that. We didn't talk about, you mentioned mental health, but we didn't really talk about postpartum depression. And I know you probably don't have any stats on your program. However, I I do have some actually, because I have have a student who does prevent postpartum depression to have someone that you can reach out to. Yeah, my sample size isn't big enough to make any claims about prevention. What I can say, there's some things I can say, and I have a student who's working on my statistics right now so that one day I hope I can make some valid claims. But one thing I can say is that more than 50% of my clients come to me with an underlying mental health disorder, right? Like they already have a diagnosis or occasionally somebody has not had a formal diagnosis, but they're pretty clear that they have anxiety or depression that they've just never seeked formal treatment for. Um, So more than 50% of the people who come to me come to me because they are very worried. They have heard the statistic that their underlying mental health disorder predisposes them. And they feel like, oh no, I'm going to get this. And so what can I do to lower my risk? The thing that pops out at them first is get support. And kudos to them because they are right. Um, With that said, I'm not going to claim that this is a silver bullet, but what it is, is someone walking beside you respectfully through that midwifery model of shared decision-making every step of the way and ready to up the ante on whatever it is that you need at any moment. So I have had many people who I've walked through the medication journey. I have many people who I have helped find a local therapist, a support group, one of my virtual therapists who does amazing uh, perinatal coaching. you know, I get people the help that they need. And I will say that I do wear some sort of therapist hat every day, um, but I'm very clear on where that line is and when I need. Well, as know. midwives, I think that's part of what we Absolutely. Do. It's what we, it's part of our heart. It's part of our midwifery mm-hmm. heart is just being with, being with yeah. woman. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, but it's, it's, again, it's no different than talking about that breastfeeding team. The second I change my lens and I'm focused on mental health, I think about my mental health team. Mm -hmm. Same thing when we're talking about physical recovery. Um, If I've got somebody who has had a pretty intense physical experience because of something in their pregnancy or more likely their birth, I've got a bigger team for that too. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that I've developed some pretty good expertise in these areas, but that doesn't make me the specialist. Right. I still call on all of them. Right. It just makes you a midwife. It what? It just makes you a midwife. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and yeah. So Tanya, I don't want to take up your whole day and I don't want my listeners to get overburdened with all that we could <laughs> share today because we can go on for hours and hours. But yep. um, if there was anything that you'd want as a takeaway, any one message that you'd want the people listening to know either about your program or about postpartum care in general, um, about being in anything at all. Yeah, no, I, I, I will say it is 
that I understand how hard it is to change gears and think about postpartum while you're still pregnant. It makes absolute perfect sense to me that this is hard to do, but I urge you by 36 weeks to start setting aside pockets of time to think about postpartum. And I'm not saying you have to hire me or anyone else that does any work that's similar, but you need to think about what you need and set yourself up for success. And if you are blessed and have an enormous family and friends network that are very close by, well then set them up and have the real hard talks right now about what your needs are and what you need that to look like. Um, and if you have the means to set yourself up for additional support, do so. This is a time when you should be supported. Um, and, you know, I'm happy to be a part of that journey with anyone, uh, but I don't care how you do it. Just get yourself some support. I love that. That's perfect. Perfect way to end. Um, just we'll put it in the show notes, but for those who are listening, what's the best way to find out more about your programs or to get in touch with you? What's your contact? Yeah. My website is motherwit, W-I-T, motherwitmaternity.com. Um, and my Instagram handle is mother.wit.maternity. So you can DM me there. You can send me an email. My email is tanya at motherwitmaternity.com. I'm super accessible um, and I'm happy to chat with people. And anyone that's interested in my monthly subscription program, that one-on-one -on -one piece, um, I do free consults for everyone who's considering that because I don't think it's fair to... Um, work with a provider that you've never met before. It's kind of like when I was a midwife, we had meet the midwives and it's the same thing. Um, it's just a principle that I stand upon. So reach out. Beautiful, Tanya. Thank you so much. And thank you to everyone who's listening today. Have a wonderful day. Thanks, Lisa. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Tongue Tie Experts podcast. Check out the show notes for useful links about the topics we discussed and for ways to follow us on social media. Please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. And if you enjoyed listening, we'd love it if you'd rate, review, and share with your friends and colleagues. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.